Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome aboard the New Scientist Escape Pod. This is the podcast for the ultimate escapism and distraction. Yep, each week we're here to talk about things to try and distract you from everyday worries. I'm Anna Deming, New Scientist Features Editor. And I'm Timothy Revel, New Scientist's Comment and Culture Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm Podcast Editor. This week's theme is warmth, which is appropriate because I'm wrapped in a duvet as I'm speaking. Um, it's about emotional and physiological warmth, but also geological warmth. Ooh. Does anyone recognise that bubbling noise? Is that a boiling pit of it's a lava? Jacuzzi, that sounds. <laughs> yes, there's your geological warmth. Uh, we're going to get to that, but before we start, you should know that you can get the ultimate escapism with a discount subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash escape20. Now, I'll start with physiological warmth. That's the sound of a swarm of bees, which might not immediately suggest warmth, uh, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, nothing quite like the warmth of a cold-blooded insect. Yes, that's why I'm trying to manufacture a clever excuse to talk about insects in a show about warmth. Uh, uh, but it's not just insects. Most living things are cold-blooded or ectothermic, meaning they operate at the temperature of their environment. So plants, trees, fungi, frogs, reptiles, uh, only birds and mammals are warm-blooded. And dinosaurs, they were also warm-blooded, but they're birds, basically. Mm. So we're warm-blooded and that helps us be active round the clock and in more extreme environments and stuff. Well, yes, that it does. And that's what I always thought was the primary reason. But uh, it's strange that our body temperature is 37 degrees Celsius, which is hotter than the mean temperature of anywhere on the planet, even the Sahara. And for birds, it's even more. Their, their average body temperature is 40 degrees. So it shouldn't be warm-blooded, it's hot-blooded. Yeah, and it's hugely expensive to be hot-blooded in energetic and calorific terms to get us up to that temperature. And one explanation for this is that it's a defence against fungi, because fungi are huge problems for amphibians and reptiles. And as we know, you know, loads of species of frog are threatened with extinction because of chytrid fungus. But fungi can't tolerate the warm bodies of birds and mammals. And these groups of animals, turns out, are far less troubled by fungi than those other animals. And it's also interesting that some bats, you know, you've heard of white nose syndrome, um, that's a fungal disease they get when they're hibernating. And that's when their body temperature is right down and they're vulnerable to a fungal infection. 
Oh, so it's actually a really good defense to be warm-blooded. Yeah. But so what? what's any of this got to do with bees? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, well, bees are very cold little beasts, but they do have the ability yeah. to generate high temperatures. Uh, and when hornets attack bees, the bees surround the invading hornet and start vibrating their wings in this ball of bees, and it generates, uh, you know, this, this hot ball... <laughs> It generates hot balls. hot balls of bees. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it gets to a hot ball of bees at 46 degrees. And uh, yeah, really hot little ball there. So they're, they're effectively cooking the hornet. That's a bit of revenge. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's quite amazing, though, if you think about it. Uh, this is in Japanese honeybees, and it, uh, Japanese hornets are huge, much bigger than the bees. So it takes this amazing coordination for the bees to get together, form a ball around an invading hornet. That sounds pretty incredible, but surely um, for the bees, it's not very good either. No. Um, and apparently bees who've been deployed in this hot ball attack have shorter lives than other worker bees, but they're also more likely to volunteer or, or be deployed in a subsequent ball when there's another hornet attack. Oh, so these battle-hardened bees, veterans of previous battles, are putting themselves forward for another fight to, <laughs> even though it's going to shorten their lives <laughs> bless them <laughs> yeah yeah the bees are helping their sisters so they don't mind the sacrifice that's the evolutionary you know explanation for it um so you know actually you know we've got physical warmth there in the heat generated but uh, there you go we've managed to put some emotional warmth to the behavior too in their self-sacrifice oh. yeah <laughs> Now, Anna, planetary warmth. Yes. Well, in a way, the Earth is a pretty warm-hearted place. Warmth is constantly flowing from its core to the surface, as it has for the past four and a half billion years, and still nowhere near running out of warmth to give. The origin of all this warmth has been hotly contended, but I think the consensus is homing in on a pretty much 50-50 split between heat generated from radioactive decay of elements like uranium-238 and thorium-232 and primordial heats. So that's the heat generated when the planet formed, when it all came together. So if you imagine a load of dust and gas clumping around as it's circling around the sun and gravity pulling it all together, you have a lot of gravitational potential energy being converted into kinetic energy. And then you get the impact of all these clumps jostling around and crashing into each other. And, and that produces loads of heat. And it's a lot of heat. By the time you scale things up to the yeah. size of the Earth, yeah. Earth's secretion is thought to have generated a temperature something like 10,000 Kelvin. So this Ooh, would have, yeah. What's that in bees? What's that? <laughs> yeah, how many bees would it take to do that kind of temperature? <laughs> anyway, it's been, this was four and a half billion years ago. So there's been a bit of time for things to cool down. And you get other things contributing. But all in all, Earth's core is still a whopping four and a half to 6,000 Kelvin, depending on you know, the where your pressure, irritation, and elemental composition is on. Wow. So it sounds le less like it's warm-hearted and more like it's hot and smouldering. Well, yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> <laughs> but although we have these really steamy temperatures, the, the kind of energy reaching the surface from the core is only... 47 terawatts so if you compare that to what you're getting from the sun from the sun you get 173,000 terawatts so by the time you get to the surface we really are talking more like warmth at that point. Mm. So, so we don't really need to be worrying about burning our feet no soon. no you don't really need shoes for that <laughs> <laughs> 
thanks to various geological formations where water has gotten a bit close to the hot magma under Earth's crust and burst out in steamy geysers and fumaroles, all that geothermal energy has been allowing our ancestors to have a refreshing hot soak for literally millennia. So mm. apparently one of the oldest bar sites dates back to 2500 BC in the lost city of... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I don't know how to pronounce this. Mahenyo Daro in the Indus Valley. <laughs> Works anyway. for me. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's very old. So... The thinking is hot baths were popular by temples where it was important to be clean and cleansed. And I, I, did, I think a little of that ancestral cleansing feeling, I think it's still a bit triggered when you have a bath today. I, I don't actually take baths very often. I don't know why, but when I have, it's usually because I'm totally knackered. And it's been a phenomenally cleansing experience outside and in. Anyway, I digress. The point is, exploiting geothermal energy isn't new. And some even point to the Roman baths at Bath Spa in the UK as one of the first commercial geothermal enterprises, because there they were actually charging people to use the baths. Ah, clever. Yeah, <laughs> never short of a way of getting a bit of money. But it was quite a while after that before people started to harness that heat as a power source to convert into other forms of energy. So it was the mounting demand for electricity at the turn of the 20th century, so a little while later. <laughs> but that mm. gave the motivation needed to a certain Piero Ginori Conti, who was businessman, politician, and Prince of Trevignano with a very aristocratic Florentine lineage. Not exactly a Medici, but maybe not a million miles mm. off. And he became head of the Boric acid extraction firm founded by his wife's great-grandfather in Landorello in Tuscany and decided to use the steam from the natural geysers there that they'd been using just for warts, he decided to use it to produce electricity. And he demoed the idea in 1904 and powered four light bulbs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it, that doesn't sound so impressive. But within a year, they'd scaled it up production to 20 kilowatts. So that was the first instance of really trying to get power from geothermal energy. And then just over 100 years later, we've got 26 countries now producing geothermal energy. And the global capacity is 12.8 gigawatts. So it's much more, but it's still quite a bit less than wind and solar, which is more in the sort of hundreds of gigawatts, which is interesting because geothermal energy doesn't rely on the weather. We're broadcasting from the UK, <laughs> you know, trying to rely on it being sunny and or windy when you yeah. want it to be. Is it, is it a bit of a thing but so you'd think that geothermal energy might be able to compete a little higher but it's 
quite tricky to exploit in a big scale. It's a lot of digging, but definitely one to watch. Definitely. So, Tim, anyway, warm robots. Yeah, so I've taken this a little laterally, um, although maybe not as laterally as bees. Um, (laughs) And so I've been looking at um, the weird and wonderful science that goes into giving robots warmth, or basically how do we make them our friends? Uh, what do, what do you two think would you, would you need for a robot to be considered friendly rather than say suspicious or creepy? Exterminate. I actually wrote about a really counterintuitive uh, sort of attractive robot or very valued robot in my book Superhuman, and there was this story about a U.S. Marine who was awarded the Purple Heart for rescuing a comrade who was under fire, but the fallen comrade that he rescued was a robot, and it was a bomb disposal robot, and it turns out that. In the army, bomb disposal robots are basically part of the unit and they they literally save the soldiers' lives and they the soldiers become very close to them and they become very closely bonded with them. So at first I thought that to make a warm and friendly and a robot you'd be emotionally linked to, you'd have to make it fluffy and cute. But that's not necessarily the case. You just need to make it matter to you in some way. Yeah, that, I mean, that's absolutely right. Like the we're so... Um, tuned to personify or um, give extra emotions to things we interact with. So it can just be something you're friendly towards. Like uh, one of my favorite um, studies around this area was um, these researchers at Harvard built this robot that was really, really basic. You know, it probably didn't look too dissimilar to a bomb disposal robot. Yeah. And they uh, they took it up to university student dorms where you need a key card to access. So and there's signs up everywhere saying, you know, don't hold the door open for anyone you don't know. Uh-huh. And basically, basically, the setup was the robot waits outside. And when a student, you know, one of the best of the best at Harvard walks up, the robot says, you know, will you let me in, please? And then if the person just ignores it, when they open the door, it then says, please, you know, like really <laughs> hoping for, you know, playing, playing, the, tugging their heartstrings. And shockingly, about one in five people would just let it in straight away. But this shot up to 75% of people if it also said, I'm delivering cookies. Oh, bless. <laughs> so it seems all you really need is something. So it, it, you just say, "I, you know, I'm going to deliver cookies," and then you can really get someone's trust, um, right? So bri- uh, bribery to their emotions. Yeah, bribery to their emotions. I mean, part of the f- fun of this is they then surveyed the people afterwards, and they said, um, "You know, did you consider that maybe it had a bomb on board?" And yeah. uh, of the 15 people who specifically said yes, I was thinking about whether it had a bomb on board. 13 of them still let the robot in. <laughs> so there's just something about the way you know the way we interact with things is we want to be polite. If a robot is polite, that feels like almost enough for us to want to interact with it in a polite way back. And what's more polite than holding a door open? I can imagine if it looks too warm and fluffy, that starts to get a bit creepy anyway. Yeah. So there's this, I think what goes too far the other way is there is when it does start to look too human-like or start to act in a way that just seems a bit too close, but not close enough. Right. Like, have you have you seen this robot, Sophia? It's like a humanoid robot made by Handsome Robotics. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Yeah. So it's really weird. Like I, I met it at a conference a few years ago and it's, it, it's you know, it's got all the, te- all the latest tech in it. So it can talk, it can talk back to you. Um, it's got a face and eyes and lips that all move in a way that is a little bit human-like but I just think it's really creepy and I think you know I'm not the only one who thinks it's creepy because it's sort of it's gone too far is that is Sophia the one that was granted citizenship yeah which I think is creepy enough it's Saudi Arabia it was Saudi right yeah it was given granted citizenship which was mostly (laughs) seemed to be a PR stunt more than anything else um, but one of one of my favourite robots is Miro the dog. 
And so Miro is a it's a it's a small, very cartoony like robot that you'd never confuse for an actual dog. But it's got lots. It sort of acts in a very animalistic way, and I think you immediately warm to it when you meet it because you know it it sort of comes up to you and looks at you out of interest with these big cartoony eyes. Then if you give it any sort of interaction, it sort of responds positively towards you. If you sort of stroke its head, its ears flop down, you know, like it's enjoying the stroke. It sort of reacts in a way that we expect from an animal, but is not too close to an animal. So it's not it's not sort of weird and creepy. It's also a dog, I suppose. Dogs appreciate people as being their masters. If it were a cat, they'd expect the person to be staff for the cat (laughs) yeah but it also i I think it's partly because it reacts in the way you expect it to there's this interesting study where they um they had a robot that um could pick things up and if the robot doesn't look where it goes to pick something up which it doesn't need to because it's got cameras all over the place it really freaks people out people absolutely hate it because it's not what they would expect a human to do and because it's got eyes it looks a bit like a human and that sort of really freaks people out but but, so part of the reason why this is is like quite useful is because when we find robots warm or um, we can trust them, they can actually, we can use them in much more useful ways. So there's this fun study by um, Cynthia Brazel at MIT, where they wanted to help people stick to a diet plan. And so the, the study setup was one group of people got a printout diet plan, just a piece of paper, basically. Another group got an interactive computer program. And the third one also uh, got this, basically the same computer program, but it was inbuilt in a robot and this robot was really, really basic. You know, it's basically like a white torso, um, a head and some eyes that move around a little bit, you know, basically rolling its eyes if you don't do very well. <laughs> and then pe- people in the study, they stuck to the plan much longer when they had the robot. They reported higher levels of trust as the robot. Many of them named the robot. They dressed it up. When the researchers came to pick up the robot, they then went to the car to say goodbye to it. And they sort of grew this attach- attachment to the robot, which then made them stick to the diet plan more. Um, and that was a very, a very, very simple robot. You know, it didn't need very much, but it was enough to give people some element of warmth, which resulted in some element of trust, which then resulted in them sticking to, you know, actually seeing through something that they wanted to do. Thanks, Tim. Uh, that's all for this week. Yes, that's all for this week's Escape Pod. We'll be back next week. Do subscribe and tell everyone about the Escape Pod and get in touch on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and tell us what escape themes you'd like us to explore. And remember, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash escape20. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Ollie Gee Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 